I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions. The cough made to California, broken hearts that boss unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dog radio How the soul may be so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone See all the stars I caught sight of my reflection I caught it in a window I saw the darkness in my heart I saw the signs of my undoing They had been there from the start And the darkness still has work to do The knotted cords untying Oh, they're heated and they're holy And they're sitting there on high So secure with everything they're buying In the blood of Eden Nothing 
something to rely on, holding still for a moment. What a moment this is! For a moment of forgetting, a moment of bliss. I've got a good sense of timing. I have the patience and discipline to wait for the right time to initiate things, to change things, or to ask for things. By wait, I don't mean endlessly because I'm decisive, but only until the time is right. I know time is short, and I'm not the only one waiting to act. The success or failure of my last project, my company's latest quarterly report, or even my boss's mood can make the difference between a yes or a no. A go or no go on a project, or even my promotion or firing. I always want people to say yes to me, and I certainly don't want to get fired. So, I thread the time needle carefully. Nearly every human venture is based on feeling and perception. Yes, even business decisions. You have to time your needs and requests to cater to and optimize your boss's feelings and perceptions. There are no shortcuts, no easy ways around him, and you can't bull your way through him. Remember, he pays you, and only he can say yes or no to you.
participants their own eye colour, that of their lover and that of their parents. She then sorted these colours, for statistical convenience, into two groups, light, hazel, green, blue-green, blue and grey, and dark, black, dark brown and light brown. Her aim was to test three conflicting hypotheses, that people are attracted to mates similar to themselves, that daughters genetically inherit preferences from mothers and sons from fathers, so they will prefer the eye colour of the other parent, or that preferences are learned by imprinting on a parent. For heterosexuals, however, the outcome of the second and third hypotheses would be the same. It was by including gay men and women in her sample that Dr. De Bruyne thought she might be able to distinguish between them. A gay son, she hypothesised, would imprint on his father, and a gay daughter on her mother. 
and so it proved. When she crunched the numbers, she found that gay men and straight women were both twice as likely as chance would predict to have a lover with a similar eye color to their father's. Likewise, straight men and gay women were two and a half times as likely as chance to have lovers of a similar eye color to their mother's. Though eye color is but one of many features that may attract romantic interest, in its particular case, that attraction seems likely to be imprinted. What's the name of this uh, radio program that I've been making? 
I don't know. Bill's big pack of onions. Bill's big pack of onions. Are you sure? Yes. I was talking to a friend of mine today. He was really depressed because he just found out that he'd failed his math class. Because of that, he wouldn't be able to graduate until the following year. His mood was really negative and he saw it as a wasted year. I told him that although it's annoying, there's no point in dwelling on it. The past is the past. He said, that's easy for you to say. I said, of course it's easier said than done, but you've got to look on the bright side. I asked him if there was anything good about the situation. He thought for a while and he told me that maybe this way he would have more time to really think about what job he was going to get in the future and have a fun year with his friends. I said, see, maybe it's a blessing in disguise. I would think it's a, definitely a blessing in disguise. Right, one more year, you don't have to work. Exactly. One of my, it would be one of my favorite years, that's for sure. Absolutely. What are you doing again? You're taking over a radio station? That's not allowed, surely.
It was a normal Saturday afternoon and I was relaxing in my studio flat. I caught my reflection in my curvy shaped IKEA mirror and with horror I noticed my hair was looking rather undone and in need of some serious care. The coarse broken afro hair was frowning back at me and I knew that I didn't have time to go to the hairdressers. Now let me begin to explain. An expedition to a black hairdresser is an outing that requires a whole day. And although it is often an amazing social activity of chatter and catch up with other ladies, it's extremely time consuming, not to mention expensive. At that age, 18, and in that moment, I didn't have enough money to pay for my hair, and I certainly did not have enough time. Now, for those of you who don't know about black hair, here is a crash course on what it means to relax one's hair coming from the perspective of a black woman. The white thick cream comes in a branded box with small little bits and bobs such as oils and shampoos like a mini camping kit. There are certain steps to its appliance and you must follow these assiduously or you're in big trouble. The main component is the white cream and it literally is the equivalent of putting hydrochloric acid on your head. The process is a violent one. It takes our beautiful black curls and straightens them so they look more like white European hair.
you're listening to my big bag of onions. Okay, but let's say you're just heading to Paris for vacation and you think you're safe. You're not. Let's say you're trying to be health conscious at a restaurant and you want to express to the waiter you don't like preservatives in your food. So you say, je n'aime pas les préservatifs. And then he gives you a wink and walks away. You should be a little bit concerned because you just said, I don't like condoms. So my French accent isn't great, but a common misstep people make when trying to speak French is basically saying the French words as if they were English words. Now, we're all really used to foreigners with thick accents, but most French people outside of Paris aren't and don't like you screwing up their language. So the usual mistake is going to a bakery and saying, Bonjour, je voudrais une... Honey, what's the French word for baguette? And the guy will look at you like you killed his family. But it gets worse, because the moment you decide to try to actually learn the pronunciation, it's a whole new world of hurt. So O-U is pronounced OU, and U is pronounced U. And so there you are in a French plane, and the flight attendant says, De l'eau? Which basically means, do you want some water? And you're really thirsty, so you want to say, Oui, beaucoup. Which means, yes, a lot. But instead you say, Oui, beaucoup. Which means, yes, nice ass. I'd better go Before I make a grave mistake And let my feelings show And twenty miles away She waits alone for me But when I try to picture her You're the one I see And in another situation I could
forces pulling out And I'm grounded here with you And I want to say the sweet things, babe I've always wanted to So tell me now the tail lights have gone out of sight Baby, won't you be my downfall once again nothing to do with onions. There is no bank, and I might not be Bill, but something's big. The paramedic was conscientious and kind, and he could see my pain and my fear. So he gave me the largest intravenous dose of morphine that he could. The drug took hold and bliss. Life was good again, and the gentle morning light returned. My accident showed me from the inside what drugs can do for you when you're traumatized and overwhelmed by the world and your own emotions. They take it away. Maybe you think this is obvious. We all know that drugs offer pleasure and escape, right? Indeed, this idea is what drives the moral model of addiction, which dominated our understanding of drugs for much of the 20th century. It views drug use as a choice, even for those we define as addicts. But in addition, It adopts a critical moral stance against this choice. It condemns addicts as selfish, lazy hedonists with no concern for the costs of drugs to themselves or others. More recently, we've started to recoil from this kind of attitude, replacing the moral model with the disease model of addiction, which sees pleasure and escape as having nothing to do with addiction. Long-term heavy drug use is supposed to cause changes in the brain, which mean that addicts have no choice and can't help it, making addiction a neurobiological disease of compulsion. I was skeptical of both these models before my accident. You don't realize how much I need you. Love you all the time and never leave you Please come on back to me I'm lonely as can be I need you Said you had a thing or two to tell me To know you would upset me I didn't realize As I looked in your eyes You told me Oh yes, you told me You don't want my loving anymore That's when it hurt me You feeling like this Can't go on anymore 
Well, I believe that everybody is capable of making music if they want to, and that there is musicality in us all, because I think of music as nothing more nor less than just organised sound, and it shouldn't be something to be afraid of. At primary school, I remember going to violin auditions where we had to say whether the second note played on the piano was higher or lower in pitch than the first note. Not louder or quieter, essentially being asked if it's pushing the air around us and into our eardrums faster or slower. And if you didn't know or understand, or that you guessed incorrectly, you were out. Essentially being told you weren't musical, but that you can always try for the choir. Fortunately, I passed this day one exam and was able to take up the violin, but this meant embarking upon the grade system. My memory of this is of a struggle to learn scales and play the notes on the page exactly right. It wasn't a lot of fun, and there was always a difficult mix of having to play the music exactly as scored, while also attempting to put your own expression into it, and that's not easy. However, at age 10, I started to play the fiddle and learn folk tunes. The folk world was always welcoming and encouraging, and not judgmental or selective. The violin and the fiddle, exactly the same musical instrument, yet there always seemed very different attitudes to them both. There's the old joke, what's the difference between a violin and a fiddle? And the answer is that you're not afraid to spill beer on a fiddle.
The setup is simple. A child is taken into a room and presented with a choice of sugary snacks. A researcher explains that the child can choose his favorite treat and eat it whenever he likes. But if he waits 15 minutes, he can have two instead. The researcher then leaves the room. Age is the strongest predictor of successfully resisting the temptation to scoff the treat straight away. Among children of the same age, however, doing well on the test is associated with plenty of good things later in life, from healthy weight to longer school attendance and better exam results. Dr. Protzko examined data from 30 studies spanning the past 50 years, though the original Stanford study was not one of them. At the same time, he polled 260 experts in child cognitive development, inviting them to predict what he might find. Just over half thought that children would have become worse at delaying gratification, perhaps thinking about a plethora of recent studies into the supposedly deleterious effects of modern technology. Another third predicted no change. Only 16% of the experts made the correct prediction. This is that children have become steadily and significantly better at the test over the past half century. In 1967, the average waiting time before succumbing to temptation was around three minutes. By 2017, that had risen to eight minutes.
is how historical dictionaries are made. Not as difficult a task today, perhaps, but Coleridge and those around him were pioneers, and every step of the process was new to him and to all who tried to help. To help him in arranging the words and the quotation slips, and his rules laid down a fixed design for the slips. They should be exactly half a sheet of writing paper in size, the head word should be at the top left, the quotation from each cited author should be written below, and there should be a separate slip for each quotation, to help him to arrange these slips, the crucially important pieces of paper that would be the project's building blocks, Coleridge had a carpenter build for him in oak a small suite of pigeonholes to hold and permit the alphabetical arrangement of the various slips that his volunteers sent in. The arrangement which he designed was six square holes high and nine across, giving him, in other words, a total of 54 pigeonholes with some 260 inches of linear space, that were thought sufficient to hold comfortably between 60,000 and 100,000 of the slips. No greater number could Coleridge ever imagine his having to deal with. When they were all filled with quotation slips, he was heard to tell his fellow philologists then and only then would it be time to start proper editorial work on the big dictionary. Anda sedang mendengarkan sebuah tas besar penuh dengan onions yang punya bill. It's the rhythm of the sea Who 
This idea that grief has an expiry date is reflective of our society which thrives on control and certainty. So it's understandable that this is one of the most common issues that the bereaved experience. All you need do is look at our compassionate leave policies to get an idea of how we think about the process of grief. This may be a curveball, but my research showed that the average compassionate leave is about the same as the statutory paternity leave. So, whether someone is arriving in the world or departing, we seem to get two weeks to adjust. That doesn't seem right. This misconception of grief creates divides and isolates both bereaved and unbereaved. And here we have a new aspect of grief. Feelings about how you are treated. 
As Iris Murdoch put it, the bereaved cannot communicate with the unbereaved. That's why I wanted to focus my book on supporting the supporters. There's plenty of help available for those in mourning, but very little for friends of the bereaved. How many times have you heard someone say, I just didn't know what to say to them? It doesn't have to be this way. The chances are someone you know will lose someone they love before you do. And it's a guarantee that we will all lose something or someone at some point in our lives. So isn't it worth getting acquainted with death and grief before we reach the point of not knowing what to say? I'm on the dark side of the hollow hill. The sun comes up, babe, but it's hard to get my feet. Your blue serape, it fits my mood. I'm through with Bible. I'm through with food Somebody's calling Trying to track me down And if I don't answer I'd hang around I slide past lovers Lost in the dark For building art I can't remember When I felt so free Maybe September The year you believed in me Nineteen hundred And Silver dagger in his hand.
Join me again soon for another big bag of onions.